This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 17. Coming down the home stretch of this series and studies in the book of Acts, or series Move. Acts uh, 17, we're going to find Paul in Athens. The the Greco-Roman culture that Paul is engaging here is not one that could be characterized by family values. I mentioned uh, briefly last week, Antioch was home to the overpowering presence of the cult of Artemis, which brought with it temple prostitution. So when you think about this, when, when sacred religious practices include prostitution, you know you're not in Kansas anymore. Our American culture is rapidly moving closer to that. Consider how Hollywood standards have changed over the decades. When I was in high school, my parents sought to enculturate me, and so I was subjected to reruns of the Dick Van Dyke show. Uh, Rob and Laura Petrie, married, have a child, and yet, and I brought this up as I watched the show with my parents, they mysteriously slept in separate twin beds. Of course, what does this do? It diffuses any explicit connotation that they had a physical relationship. And as you watch the show, you realize that coarse language, which describes bodily functions and sexual activity, all that was excluded from broadcast discourse. Not so much anymore, right? So as American culture moves closer to that of the Greco-Roman culture of the first century, how do we engage it? Well, Paul had to figure out a way. Because this is where he found himself in Athens. Let's read the story. Acts 17, starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, 
as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So I want to offer four, I'm calling tips, four tips on engaging secularized culture faithfully and fruitfully. We'll make our observations based on Paul. Here are the four. Expect friction. Establish pivot points. Engage in full-orb truth-telling. And envision diverse responses. Expect friction, establish pivot points, engage in full-orb truth-telling, and envision diverse responses. First, expect friction. As Paul studiously observed the culture of Athens, Luke tells us that his spirit was provoked within him. Paul experienced a paroxysm. It's not a medical condition. It's a fit of emotion. The word is used of God's anger at idolatry. So Paul is disturbed by what he sees. To see the law of God mocked and ridiculed and ignored provokes Paul's Spirit. Paul has a very godlike response. Why is it God is provoked at idolatry? Numerous places we could turn to. Exodus 32 is as good as any. God is speaking. He says, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut their asherim, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. God is provoked by idolatry. Why? Because he's a jealous God. What do we mean by that? What do we mean by the jealousy of God? On the human level, to be jealous is to resent someone. To be jealous of someone who may outshine us in looks or intellect or skill is to resent them for it, and that is sinful. But what if a third person enters a marriage? The jealousy of the injured person, the one being displaced, is righteous. Because the intruder has no right to be there. By virtue of being our creator, God has the right to our exclusive allegiance. And he's jealous if we transfer that to someone else. So Paul is watching image bearers, human beings whom God made for his glory, enter into relationships with third parties. Parties who have no right to be there, and he's rightly provoked to anger. Now, our idols today may not look like what Paul saw in Athens, but we do have them. Dave Pallison suggests that we ask the if-only question to find where our idols are located. If only what? Then I'd be happy. What could go in the blank? 
only I made more money, then I could be content. If only I had this job, then I'd be happy. If only I could get married, then I'd be satisfied. If only what? Then I could be content. There is so much we could put in that blank. Success, approval, popularity, beauty, science, technology, military might, political power. The actor Jim Carrey put it profoundly. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Now, you could take his quote and you could put in other things besides rich and famous. And it still rings true. I think everybody should, so they can see it's not the answer. The sexual revolution continues to market sexual and gender freedom, promising contentment and satisfaction if desires are attended to. Christians, what you need to identify that as is a false gospel. It's promising the good life. But you and I both know it's not going to deliver. And that should provoke us to paroxysms. One thing I want you to notice, though, about Paul's paroxysms, it doesn't prevent him from engaging these folks with gentleness and courtesy. Righteous indignation and gentleness and respect can go together. They can go together. Now, that's one friction that Paul experiences. There's another one, though. Paul addresses two distinct groups of people. You saw this, the Epicureans and the Stoics. A little bit about these dudes. Epicureans believed that the gods were distant and removed from the day-to-day affairs of life. And they modeled their approach to life so they didn't get bothered by the day-to-day things like suffering and morality, but rather, eat, drink, and be merry. There was a famous Epicurean philosopher who once said this, nothing to fear in God, nothing to feel in death. Good pleasure can be attained. Evil can be endured. Sounds similar to secular agnostics today. That might work as a bumper sticker, in fact. If there's a God, he's far away from us. And we don't need to be concerned with him. The idea is to make the best of life, not get caught up in suffering, but rather pursue pleasure. The Stoics are panentheists. God is in everything. God orders the universe and he can be found everywhere. He permeates everything, kind of like the Star Wars force. And the goal of life is to live according to this rational principle that's guiding the universe. You would find yourself at one with nature because God is in the midst of nature. So they stressed a self-sufficiency. They stressed an ethics and an obedience, civic duties, not unlike many Eastern religions today. In fact, as I look at this, I thought Taoism is perhaps a good comparative. Stoics and Epicureans were miles from anything Paul was speaking about. And they come to the immediate conclusion that Paul is a babbler. Literally seed picker, someone who hears things here and there and doesn't really think about it, but they just go out being a mouthpiece for the ideas they don't understand. He spreads this concoction of ideas that he's heard, kind of a pseudo-intellectual. But what are they actually hearing? (laughs) The biblical story. 
But what they say they're hearing is strange things. What are you talking about? This has to be the strangest thing I've ever heard. I had a a coworker that worked with me at the bank in college, a fellow teller named Kelly. I spent five to seven minutes retracing the Bible storyline, talking about the gospel. I got done, and the look on her face said it all. What are you talking about? This is, I've never heard this. This is very strange. Her words. The Christian message is going to sound strange, new, foreign. Think about your own journey with it. That might have been the way it sounded to you. Or maybe you're new to Christianity right now and it sounds strange to you. Maybe it's a little intellectually suspect. You know, you hear Christians talking about things like there's one God and he's the creator and there's sin and and there's judgment and we need a savior and there's heaven and hell and miracles and conversion and we need to be obedient and there's grace, there's faith, there's repentance. Oh, and there's this thing called the resurrection. (laughs) The whole story can sound incredibly strange. Expect friction. But where there's friction, don't panic, don't revile, don't retreat. Second, establish pivot points. Now, Paul's theology obviously is rooted in the Bible. He knew what he believed. Jew by birth, Christian by conversion. Paul looked for connecting points between what he knew to be true through Scripture to what he saw in this culture around him. He's looking for connections, for springboards, for pivot points as he engages the culture. How does he do this? Well, look at verse 22. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Hey, we've got that shared. I am too. You are as well. Notice he's curious, uh, courteous. He compliments them, even though underneath he's having a paroxysm. He shows self-restraint looking for common ground. You're religious. I'm religious. And then he says this, you know, as I was walking around the streets, your famous city, I found an altar with an inscription that said to an unknown God, I've got some good news for you. I can tell you about that one. I can tell you about that one. So Paul establishes a bridge between himself and the Athenians, a launching off point. He spots something within their religious system. He can use to pivot into talking about the gospel story. And then he goes further than that, tells you what a student of culture he was. He uses two of their own pagan poets, American idol type people in their culture to set up his gospel talk. Talk about someone who has studied the culture. He's not been there that long. He's looking for this, what can I use? What can I use in this culture to launch me into the gospel? Now today, what does that look like? Numerous ways you could use it. It might mean picking up something in modern culture to use as a pivot point for talking about the gospel. Going Going back to idolatry as if the if only disease, look for something within our cultural artifacts that can get me there. One that I have turned to again and again is simply telling people about my favorite childhood movie. Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire. You've seen the movie, right? In fact, I was so infatuated with this movie. If you've not seen it in the last 40 years, sorry. Uh, you know, it's the Olympics, the 8th Olympiad, British track team. You know, they ran on dirt, right? And, and what do you see? You take, they take uh, little shovels and they dig their starting blocks out of it, right? I was so fascinated with that as a five-year-old boy 
on a hot summer day, I went out to our asphalt road that we lived on. And it was very hot that day. I, I took the, the spade and started digging holes. And I was lifting stuff out of the road. And a city worker drove by. Said, what are you doing to my road? And I said, I'm making starting blocks. Anyway. One of, one of the main characters of the story is a guy by the name of Harold Abrahams. He's obsessed with winning. It drives him. So much so that he hires a professional trainer, which at that time was frowned upon. Harold is determined to win the gold medal. He's obsessed with doing so. And there's a scene in the movie right before the finals of the 100-meter dash where Harold's in the training room. He's getting ready. His friend and his teammate, Aubrey, is there with him. And Harold becomes reflective and says this. He says, you, Aubrey, are my most complete man. You're brave, compassionate, kind, a content man. That's your secret. Contentment. I'm 24 and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit, yet I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. Aubrey, old chap, I'm scared. And now in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? Harold goes out there and wins. He wins the gold medal. He's lifted on the shoulders of his teammates. He's got the British flag, and you'd think, well, that's where the end would come across the screen. But it doesn't. In one of the very next scenes, Harold is in the bar, a bit inebriated, staring off into the distance as if to say, is this all there is? Now, Harold's problem wasn't in the effort to win or the actual winning. The problem was what he was asking the winning to do for him. Career success cannot provide you with ultimate satisfaction. In fact, neither can romance or money or hobbies. They're gimmicks that cannot provide lasting happiness. Now, of course, for the thoroughly secular person, this, by definition, is all they are using to pursue contentment. And the only thing I'm attempting to do in that moment is to create roadblocks in their approach to life, to put a stone in their shoe, as Greg Kokel likes to say. I'm trying to establish pivot points. Every day is littered with counterfeit gospel stories that people attach themselves to in hopes of finding the good life. You just need to look for them. Tom Brady has been in the news recently. Years ago, after he'd won three, I think, Super Bowl rings, he had an interview with a local CBS affiliate. And he said, why do I have all these Super Bowl rings and think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it's important. I reach my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think there has to be more than this. This can't be. It's all it's cracked up to be. (laughs) He's drawing strength from his professional accomplishments and all the accolades that come with it. He's drawing strength from human beings, and yet he's still restless, discontent, and thirsty. And now look at it. Why do you think players like Michael Jordan, Brett Favre, Tom Brady retire and then unretire? Career is their gold medal. If only Harold Abrahams and Jim Carrey could talk to them. Paul studies the Athenian way of life. He looks for counterfeit gospel stories, and then he uses those as pivot points to launch into talking about the true gospel. 
Third, engage in full orb truth telling. The God that Paul presents to these groups of people smashes to smithereens the way they see the world. Hey, Paul didn't stop with, hey, you know what one of your superstars poets says that we're indeed uh, his offspring? Isn't that so cool and true? You know, one creator God made us, and so in one sense, that's true. Hey, let's celebrate that. Let's go get some baklava. Paul didn't stop with areas of agreement. He started with areas of agreement, but he pushed farther down the road to disagreement. He knew what he was about to say was going to be controversial. And what we have Paul in Paul's talk here is probably only a summary of it, but look at what he says. There is one God, and you can know him. They were not monotheists. They didn't believe there was just one God. There are hundreds of them. But Paul says, no, there's one God, and he created you, and you can know him. Well, not according to either group. The Epicureans were a bit deistic in their view on this, and the Stoics didn't speak of knowing God. You don't know a force. And Paul's message to this group is that there is one creator, God of the universe. He's sustainer of everyday life. He's independent of us such that he has no needs that we meet. Ruler of the nations, establishing their date of birth, date of death, their boundaries. And this God is judge to whom all will give an account one day. (laughs) That's his story. Interesting way to share the gospel with secular people, isn't it? He starts with a robust doctrine of God, who he is and what he does. Creator, sustainer, ruler, judge, sufficient. Why do you suppose he starts that way? The text doesn't really give us a motive for Paul to share the gospel this way, but I think we can make an important inference. People unfamiliar with the Bible need a large biblical framework if the gospel is to be understood on its own terms. Let me illustrate that. Imagine explaining the Star Wars movies to someone who's never seen it or even heard of it. Okay? Well, you could get to the gospel part and say, well, there was this massive deadly space station called the Death Star, and Luke Skywalker blew it up, and the good guys won. Well, kind of. Until there was another, even more massive, deadly space station disguised as an entire planet, and the good guys blew that up too. But somehow Palpatine survived all that, and he was massing another fleet of lethal star destroyers. And the Star Wars ignoramus stops you and says, now hold on a minute. Who's Luke Skywalker? And you said, Palpa what? Papa what? Palpatine? Death Star? Good guy? Where'd they all come from? Who are they? And suddenly you realize, well, maybe you need to start from the beginning for the part you're talking about to make sense. What if the good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, exaltation needs to be understood within the larger story of the Bible? What if it doesn't make sense to someone unfamiliar with the Bible, unless the broader framework is explained first. This is not to be too terribly critical of the four spiritual laws, or evangelism explosion, or some of the other modern methods we've developed. God has used those, but I raise a question. What if the Bible itself is meant to be our track? with secular people in particular? What if God gave us the whole book for the purpose of evangelism? Sometimes we feel in a rush to get through an entire gospel presentation in 15 minutes and then call for repentance and faith. Why? 
Why are you in such a rush? Why not instead invite them to do a Bible study with you? Where God can introduce himself to them as he introduced himself to everyone else. Daniel Strange does a lot of evangelism. He says, when people tell me they don't believe in God, I often say, well, (laughs) I bet I don't believe in the God you don't believe in. And he says this, it's essential that we distinguish the living God of the Bible from what other people think God is like. That's what Paul's doing. To secular people, the God of the Bible is an unknown God. And to counter the ignorance, Paul puts in front of them a large framework and then situates the gospel within it. Now notice quickly one last thing about Paul's truth-telling. He calls them to repentance. Do you see that? Paul is not just conveying information. He calls for a response to that information. It's very much like Jesus. Jesus doesn't just say, agree with what I say. He says, follow me. (laughs) Be careful not to leave the putt short. Don't leave the putt short. Get it all the way to the hole and let them know Jesus wants a response, not just intellectual agreement. Last, envision diverse responses. When they heard of the resurrection from the dead, Luke writes, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. Some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Not every gospel communication results in winning over the entire crowd. There are three responses people have to Paul's presentation of the Bible story. Criticism, curiosity, and belief. Some criticized. Some mocked. In fact, the text suggests that he was interrupted the moment he mentioned the resurrection. (laughs) He had said some things that directly confronted the Epicurean and Stoic ways of seeing the world up to this point. No question. But mentioning the resurrection, that's beyond the pale. That's it. No more. So even the great Apostle Paul was mocked during a gospel communication. Ever been there? You're in good company. Others wanted to hear more about this. They neither mocked nor believed, but they were curious. And some joined Paul and believed. How about you? What has your response to the gospel been? Belief? Curiosity, doubt. Sir Thomas Fuller said, you cannot repent too soon because you do not know how soon it will be too late. So I appeal to you, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, make that change today. If you're not sure what that means, talk with the person who invited you. Talk with the person here who knows you. Talk with me. You cannot repent too soon because you do not know how soon it will be too late. Now, my fellow Christians, when it comes to inviting people to hear the gospel or calling people to repentance, never say no for anybody. Don't say no for people. Don't say no for people. 
There was a pastor who, a great story of this, he writes, he said, I remember a banquet in a secular setting. A group of us were sitting at a table, and there was one empty seat, and this guy sat down in it. He was a smooth character. I sat on one side of him, and an attractive woman sat on the other side of him. And when he sat down, his first comment was to the woman, well, what have you been doing here except turning the heads of everyone in the room? I said, well, just eating lunch. (laughs) That launched us into an interesting conversation, and it turned towards spiritual things. He grew up Jewish, had no involvement in that faith beyond the age of 12. He had been to a Unitarian church a couple of times, had been divorced three times. Now, if I had to assess someone on the basis of one conversation who was as far away from faith in Christ as it could be, it would have been this guy. His name was Steve. I invited him to come to our church, and I never thought I'd see him again. The next Sunday, he came to our worship service and sat in the front row. He talked with me afterwards and asked where we got our material. (laughs) I told him about the Bible, and I got him a New Testament. He had never read a New Testament in his life. He started getting up very early in the morning. He read 20 or 30 pages of the Bible every day. He came back to church the next week and the next. We kept talking, and he started thinking about making a decision to believe in Christ. It would be a costly thing for him because of his heritage. His family told him if he became a Christian, he would be dead to them. But he finally said yes to God. The last time I saw him, he was with a friend. He threw his arms around me and said to his friend, I want you to meet the person who helped bring me to Jesus. I almost missed that because I almost said no for him. As Paul walked around Athens for the first time in his life, observing the beliefs, the values, the practices of the Athenian people, I wonder if he thought, These people have to be as far away from God as any I have ever seen or heard of. They won't be interested in the story I have to tell. And yet Paul didn't say no for them. He put the gospel out in front of people who may have been the unlikeliest people to respond. The result? One day you and I, we'll hear the testimonies of Dionysius and Damaris and others like them. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I don't know why we're surprised when we hear about stories like Dionysius, Damaris, Steve, and others that we could all talk about today. I don't know why we're surprised. You created the universe out of nothing. There's nothing that's impossible for you. But what we need is increasing faith. Trust to know that you're a powerful God who's at work. And you'll do it in ways that often shock us and surprise us. So Lord, I pray that that power would give us courage. Help us not say no for people. But we put it out there. Even though, even in the most unlikeliest of candidates, Lord, help us to put it out there. 
and stand back and watch you work. God, we thank you. We thank you that you have called us. And some of us, you had to overcome some pretty significant hurdles to bring us to your son, Jesus. Help us remember what it took. So we will not grow weary in putting Jesus out in front of others. Give us trust, give us courage, and we pray it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our champion, our soon and coming King. Amen.